So which church are you going to be a part of? Which church are you going to associate with? It's a very big issue. And what's the basis of that decision? And there are lots of factors that come into play. Your friends, your upbringing, the type of services that are conducted, the location of it, um, your history, your view on life. All of these things are factors in decision making. But when you come to scripture, you discover this, that the Bible presents itself as with every aspect of Christian life as the authority to which we should go to answer that question and to find out which church and what is right about church gatherings. And the scriptures are authoritative and they should be solely authoritative when we think about this issue. So why are the scriptures solely authoritative when we think about the church? And we could spend the whole session speaking about the authority of Scripture. But let me just say this very briefly. That the Scriptures are authoritative, number one, because they are inspired of God. So the Word of God is inspired. It is uniquely so. It is a standalone book in the whole of the world. It presents itself as such. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And the scriptures are God-breathed. They are inspired. Second Peter 1.21, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And again in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13, the New American Standard says this, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired of God. And then secondly, Scripture is also complete. And again, you go to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2 says this, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish up from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. And in that context, in the giving of the law to Israel, the law was given with that provision in it. Do not add to it, do not take away from it. Receive it in its entirety as given by God and respond in obedience to it. And then you come to the, Old, the New Testament and the last book of the New Testament also within it has that same type of warning. Revelation 22, right at the end in verses 18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in the book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and so on. And so, with regard to the book of Deuteronomy, with regard to the book of Revelation, you have inside those books those warnings. And warnings are contained in Scripture as to adding to parts of Scripture and taking from parts of Scripture. The Word of God, as delivered, as inspired, as received, is complete and requires and cannot be added to or should not be taken from. So scripture is inspired of God and scripture is complete and scripture is also infallible. There are no mistakes within it. Psalm 119 verse 151. Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. 
Again, Romans 7, verse 12. The law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. And the totality of scripture and the truth that it conveys is true, is without mistake, is infallible. It's also inerrant. It's inerrant in every word. It is without error. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says that every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. And there are other issues that you could apply your mind to as to the authority of Scripture. But Scripture is authoritative, and it is to Scripture we should turn when thinking about the subject of the church and fellowship within the church. So let's come to the subject, and let's look at what Scripture has to say about it. Now, when you think about the word church and its usage in the Bible... It is interesting that the word itself, what does the word itself mean? Now, you don't get the truth of God simply from a word definition. Language isn't like that. Uh, New Testament, Old Testament language is not like that. Our language, English language, is not like that either. But the word meaning is an important starting basis. What does the word mean? Well, the word itself means to be a a, a called out, something that is called out. There's a preposition and a verb. And the preposition would indicate out and the verb is to call. And so something or someone or some people who are called out. And it appears that in ancient Greek language, this term or expression was used for an assembly of people who had gathered for some purpose. For example, in Acts chapter 19 and verse 32, it's used in that way, not about a Christian church or Christian gathering, but a gathering of people. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. The church was confused. Now that's not a Christian assembly, that's just a group of people who gathered together with common purpose. And for the more part, they knew not whether they were come together. Now that's a pity if any Christian churches like that all gathered and no idea why they're gathered together. Well, that was true in Ephesus. There was a mob who came together with common purpose, but they didn't really understand what they were doing. But the word is used about that group who were gathered together with common purpose, separating themselves from where they had been, coming together into one place for that purpose. So there is the use of the word. And the word is used with that type of meaning in the Bible. It is used of people gathered together with common purpose. It's used in this way. The Bible speaks about the church which is his body, the body of Christ. So it speaks about this expression, the church which is his body. And when you come to the New Testament and you begin to look at the subject of the church, you come across this expression. And it is used in that way in a very broad sense. It's used of every single Christian, those who have lived, those who are living, and those who will live. Every single Christian is a member of that church, which is his body. The Lord Jesus, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, referred to that when he said, I will build my church. 
Now, I don't think he was referring to just a little company here in Bensham or in Bridger Weir or in any other single location at a singular moment in time. He is referring to the church, which is his body. That large entity that he looked down through the, the ages of time from the point that he spoke down right through until he would come back to the sky and take that entity away in all its fullness. He said, I will build my church. I will construct this entity and will do so here upon earth. And he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Satanic opposition will not prevent that construction work by Christ and the completion of that entity. Again, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, he refers to the same thing. And God gave Christ to be the head over all things, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. There's an intimate relationship between every single believer in the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus himself. He is the head and every Christian is the body. Now you can see the picture that scripture employs even when you look at the physical body and you look at the head and you look at the body and the relationship between the two. And you see that the body responds to the head and the body takes all instruction and all authority and direction from the head. Every part of the body relates to the head. And that image, if you like, that concept we can see in relation to Christ and Christians. Every Christian owes allegiance to him. Every Christian is intimately connected to him. Every Christian accepts the authority of him. And every Christian should live in response to him. He is the head. We are the body. This is also referred to as being a mystery in the Bible. Now, a mystery in the Bible is something that God kept hidden for some time and subsequently has revealed. And if you look at this subject, you will find there are 14 such doctrines in the New Testament and one of them is called the mystery of the church. You see, the word of God had brought about and had explained to us, I should say, the distinctions that God had within mankind. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 32, it speaks of such distinctions. It speaks about Jews and it speaks about Gentiles and it speaks about the church of God. So it speaks about those who had covenant relationship with God before the coming of Christ, right throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, in special relationship with God, chosen by God out of the nations and blessed with his promises, his covenants. And then you have a reference to every other nation, every other culture, if you like, Gentiles. And then here's something else, the church of God. So you have Jews, you have Gentiles, you have church of God. And the Gentiles refer to all the nations in earth apart from Israel. Now, mind you, through Israel, in spite of all of their failures, came the written word of God in the Old Testament and also the one of whom the written word of God spoke, the word of God who was the living word of God, Christ the Messiah came. So they were blessed beyond measure. 
God gave them the covenants. God gave them his word. God gave them his law. And through them came into the earth the Messiah. Now to protect the messianic line through Abraham and David to Christ, God erected a wall. He called it a middle wall of partition. And he walled off that nation and he gave them distinctives in terms of their food, their diet, their customs. And that distinctiveness of that nation was to be preserved, to preserve the line of the Messiah that would come through them. So there was to be no intermarriage and all that kind of thing. And it was for that purpose that the line of the Messiah might be preserved. Now once the Saviour came, God tore down that middle wall of partition. And in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, referring to the Lord Jesus, it says this, He is our peace, who hath made both one, Jew and Gentile, now one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between these two groupings. Now, mind you, Gentiles could be saved in the Old Testament and brought into a relationship with God. In fact, you've got Rahab, you've got Ruth, and you've got other examples in the Old Testament of non-Jewish people, if you excuse the expression, who were brought into a relationship with God, who knew God, who were saved by faith, but yet were outside of these special covenant promises and relationship with God. But when you come into the New Testament, it's different. In the New Testament, believing Jews and Gentiles now not only come to God in the same principle of faith, but also they share the same blessings equally. And that's a new thing. That is the church, which is his body. A single entity now, blessed with all the same blessings, no distinctions between race, no custom, customs distinctions or anything existed in the Old Testament, all blessed in, this, blessed in the same principle and all blessed in the same way, the same blessings, the church which is his body. Now it's described in lots of ways in the Bible. In fact, there are ten principal word pictures which give a kind of general rounded impression of this entity. I'm not going through them in detail, but, you know, the church is spoken of as a bride. And it speaks of the separateness and devotedness of the church to Christ himself, a bride. It's spoken of as a temple and a building, a body, a family, a flock, a field, pillar and ground, a lampstand, a house and a vine. And all of these images and analogies, they indicate the intimacy of relationship between Christ and his body so what is the purpose of the church now don't worry we'll come to the local church in a moment but you see we cannot understand the local church until we understand the church which is his body well what is the purpose of the church then here upon earth well number one continuation you see it is God's purpose that the church should continue the work that Christ began here upon earth Listen to what Acts chapter 1 and verse 1 says. Look as he writes, says, The first account I composed, O Theophilus, of all that the Lord Jesus, all that Jesus did and taught. No, I didn't say that. All that Jesus began to do and teach. 
You see, the work of Christ upon earth did not stop with the death, resurrection and ascension of Christ. The work of Christ has continued upon earth, but his physical presence is not here. He sent the Holy Spirit down to indwell believers in the Lord Jesus and through whom his work would be continued on earth. So the work of Christ continues and the church is the vehicle through which Christ works. It is the continuation of his work. That's one of the purposes of the church. Secondly, proclamation. 1 Timothy 3 verse 15 says this about the church, which is the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground or the pillar and support of the truth. Again, the picture is one of our beautiful Greek structure and you've got these pillars and the pillars are firmly grounded, linked to the solid foundation and they uphold the building. And the idea is just this, that the church is God's chosen instrument, the means by which his truth will be displayed and upheld to the world. Proclamation. So you have continuation in the work of Christ and you have proclamation of divine truth. You also thirdly have demonstration. Again, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 speaks of the church in, this, in these terms. That the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So there is demonstration in that the church uses Christ to demonstrate his wisdom. Now we're going to see that later that there are very strong demonstrations of his wisdom, even symbolically to be displayed in the local church. But as God used the patriarchs of the Old Testament to teach, so he uses the church in the new to teach and to demonstrate. And again, the, the other idea uh, amongst others is glorification. Ephesians 3.21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And of course, the church continues what the Lord Jesus started. The Lord Jesus, when he was here upon earth, glorified the Father. And we as the church have the same role in that we ought to also bring glory to God whilst here upon earth. Now, there are lots of other scriptures you could refer to. For example, Ephesians 1.4, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. James chapter 1, verse 18, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And Romans 7, verse 4, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. There are lots of other scriptures that speak to the purpose of the church here upon earth. Well, let's come then to the concept of the local church. If that is the church which is his body, what about the local expression of that? And it's important to understand that's what a local church is. It is the local expression of the large thing within a locality at any given time. A local church. Now, when you come to think about this, it is spoken, the word church is used to speak about believers, not only in that large sense of being the church which is his body, but scripture speaks about the church met in a singular location, such as a city or a house. Romans 16 uh, verses 3 to 5 refers to the church in that way as being the church that met in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. 
So here is something that's localised in its description. Now again, here is some uh, information, or here is some information about the use of the word church in that context. The word church is translated as such. Uh, my numbers here are 112 times. So ecclesia, the Greek word is translated church 112 times, and assembly three times. And if my references are right, the reference in 97 occasions is to a local church. One reference is to the congregation of Israel in the wilderness in Acts chapter 7. And the remaining 14 references are to the church which is his body, as sometimes referred to as the universal church. Now the word church in the Bible is never used to refer to a building or a denomination Baptist, Presbyterian, Brethren, or anything like that. Nor is it used to refer to a state church, such as the Church of Scotland, England, Ireland, and so forth. But it's used in these ways. There are three important usages in the New Testament. Number one, the churches of God. You find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 16. And that indicates that God is the source, He is the giver. Of all of the church's blessings, they belong to him. They are the churches of God. They are also referred to in Romans 16, verse 16, as the churches of Christ. And Christ is the redeemer, Christ is the head, and Christ ministers to their needs. They are the churches of God, they are the churches of Christ. And then thirdly, they are spoken of as all churches of the saints. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 Verses 33, you find that expression. That is, that these churches consist of those described as saints, those separated by God to himself from the world at salvation. Now that's a very important distinctive. They belong to God. They are centred in Christ and responsive and accountable to him. And they consist of saints, those who have been separated and made holy by God at conversion, no longer associated with the world, but separated to himself. Saints. So the churches of God, the churches of Christ, and churches of the saints. Now what then about fellowship in a local church? As you come to this subject now. Well, the word fellowship is not the same as membership. They are different concepts. And it's important to make the distinction. The word fellowship, by way of definition, actually refers to, and here's the quotation, a mutual sharing or common interest in something. Accused of sharing a truth, a burden, a bond, a joy, a provision, or a responsibility. Fellowship, sharing, commonality, partnership, if you like. It's interesting that that word fellow is often used in scripture referring to Christians. Let me give you some examples. Ephesians 2.19, we are fellow citizens. That is, we have the same citizenship in heaven, same homeland. We are fellow disciples. You find that in John eleven sixteen, we follow the same master. Fellow heirs, Ephesians 3, 6, we have the same inheritance. Fellow helpers, 
in relation to the truth. Third John, verse 8. Fellow laborers in relation to the gospel. First Thessalonians 3, 2. Fellow servants in relation to our commission. Colossians 4, verse 7. Fellow soldiers in relation to our spiritual conflict. Philippians 2, 25. Fellow workers seeking the same kingdom. Colossians 4, verse 11. You might find some more. There are more I understand, but there's a few anyway, and it doesn't take long to find them. But it indicates what we as Christians have in common, what we share, and we share so much. We share so much. But listen, there is a difference between membership and fellowship. The word member is a word associated in Scripture with the body of Christ, the church which is his body. Romans 12 verse 5 is an example of that word being used in that context. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. There's the word member. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Now again, it's drawn from the analogy of the body and members of the body, and that's the concept of membership. Now, membership of the body of Christ is compulsory for a Christian and immediate upon conversion. Now, I was trying to think of a suitable analogy, a kind of illustration. I could hardly find one, to be honest. But, you know, it's the idea of you not applying for membership. You are automatically made a member when you accept Christ as your saviour. And it is immediate. You, know, you don't need to wait for a wee card to come through the post or to sign a slip or to be attending a church for some long period of time or anything like that. So you are automatically in the body of Christ as a member. And that is compulsory, it is inevitable, it is immediate, and it is without reverse. You cannot extricate yourself from that entity. It is permanent. For example, Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6, there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one Hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Listen, when we get saved, we become a member of the body of Christ because we're united to Christ and we are united to other Christians because of that. And we can only be an expression in our locality of that if we are a member of the body of Christ. We cannot express that locally in a local church unless it is true. Which is why a local church is only for those who are in the body of Christ. It consists solely of Christians. Not of a mixture of people who are Christians and who are not Christians. Now that's not to say that when the church gathers, 
We obviously want people who are not Christians to come amongst us and to listen and to be served by us and to know the love of Christ, but they cannot be in fellowship in a local church unless they are members of the body of Christ because otherwise they are an intricate part of the sharing and of the demonstration and of the display of what is not true in their own experience. They're not members of that body, therefore they cannot manifest that in the locality. So that basic qualification is required for fellowship. You must be a Christian. That seems perhaps a little basic, but it is not too basic for any of us to understand. And we can lose that sometimes. And say, well, you know, we're a church within a church. And there's a church in our locality and there is a, a strong group of good evangelical Christians within that church. They're fine folk. But they speak of themselves as a church within a church. But when you come to the Bible, that does not exist. You cannot be part of a local church unless you are part of the church which is his body. So church fellowship is different from membership. You know, when you think about membership, well, it just springs into mind. You think about the local gym. I don't know how many of you go to the gym. I could maybe guess. But I don't know how many of you go. Uh, I don't go, so I'm not throwing stones here. But uh, if you think about gym membership, usually when you come to January, you have a spike because of the Christmas dinner. And everyone's feeling fat and unfit. So everyone, well, not everyone, but lots of people sign up for gym membership and they sign up for 12 months and make the pain a bit easier monthly payments so that's fine no problem however it is you pay and folks go along for about two weeks and they get fed up and don't go back so it's great business for the gym but you see it's come October you're still a member of that gym but you haven't been near it for 10 months you're still a full member because you paid your dues but you've never been through the door You've never experienced any of the benefits for 10 months. You've never made a contribution to it for 10 months apart from financial. That's membership. You see, you can be a non-participant member. You can be a member in name only. You can be a silent member in terms even of partnership ideas. But that's not true when you come to a local church. Fellowship is not membership. Fellowship is not signing and saying, I'm joining this church and then that's it. That's not fellowship. That's membership. And membership as a concept is not what the Bible means when it speaks about local church. So what does it mean then, positively? It means to be part of a community. It means to be committed to that and part of it. It means to open yourself up to others and to allow others in. It means to get involved with people. It means to be part of a local family of believers who have submitted to godly elders and their God-given authority and accountability to Christ alone. I sometimes hear people say the elders are accountable to the church. It never says that in the Bible. Anywhere. It says the elders are accountable to a far more greater, a far greater scrutiny than that. They are actually accountable to Christ for their care of the church. But not accountable. It's not congregational leadership in Scripture. It is the leadership of elders under the authority of Christ and accountable to the chief shepherd alone. 
And so Christians come together under that authority, under that care, under that shepherding care, which form the flock over which the Holy Spirit had made them overseers. Acts 20, verse 28. So as Christians, we need the mutuality that a local church provides. We need the teaching, the fellowship, and the opportunities to serve that a local church provides. And the Bible assumes that you will be in fellowship in a local church. Now, I said assumed because it is an assumption. But it's an assumption with a strong biblical foundation. I want to show you that foundation now. There is no explicit command to formally join yourself to a local church in the New Testament. But there is an inherent assumption that permeates the New Testament that every believer will be in fellowship with other saints in their locality in a local church. Because much of the New Testament cannot be obeyed otherwise. It cannot be practiced. You cannot do what God says you should do unless you're in fellowship in a local church. There is an assumption. Let me give you, amongst others, four aspects of that basis upon which the assumption sits. They are, number one, the example of the early church. Number two, the existence of church government. Number three, church discipline. And number four, mutual edification. Now what about the example of the early church? Now we mustn't look at the book of Acts and think that it is the same type of literature as an epistle, for example. Much of the book of the Acts is narrative. But when you look through Acts, you discover this, that the example of the early church is set forth for us to learn from. In the early church, coming to Christ was coming to the church. That's a very important truth to understand. They weren't seen as being two different things. The idea of experiencing salvation without connection to or fellowship in a local church was foreign to the New Testament. That's why I read in Acts chapter 2. They that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day, the same day, they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, more than simply living out private, isolated commitment to Christ. This meant joining together formally with commitment to other believers within a community. Because it then says that they continued steadfastly. So they were added, that's addition, and then there was continuation. So this wasn't a one-off thing. They gave themselves And they continued steadfastly and did so in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then you come to what follows the book of Acts, which is the letters of the apostles to the churches. And the epistles of the New Testament were written to churches. Basic, I know, but think about it. If you weren't in those churches, then that apostolic communication was not for you. 
They were written to churches. And in the case of the few written to individuals such as Philemon, Timothy and Titus, they were written in church context as to behaviour and issues within those local churches. So Titus and Timothy and Philemon in relation to a personal family issue which impacted the local church. Timothy about how he should serve in those churches. Likewise with Titus. So when a believer, for example, moved to another location, the expectation was that he would, as he moved location, go from one local church to another. And letters of commendation in the New Testament were for that purpose, to facilitate that. So that a person can transition as they move locality, so they would not be without local church fellowship, if at all possible. So, for example, Acts chapter 18, verse 27, when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. Colossians 4.10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluted you and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you receive commandments. If he, if he come to you, receive him. Now also, in the book of Acts, much of the language fits into the concept of church fellowship for all believers. Acts 6 verse 5 speaks about the whole congregation. Chapter 8 verse 11, the church in Jerusalem. Chapter 9 verse 26, the disciples in Jerusalem. Chapter 14 verse 23, in every church. Chapter 15 verse 17, the whole church. Ephesians 20 verse 17, the, uh, the uh, Acts 20 verse 17 about Ephesus the elders of the church so there is an assumption as you read through the history of the early church that Christians were not freelancers they were all in church fellowship associated with those local communities then secondly you've got church government now, the consistent pattern through the New Testament is that there were a plurality of elders that were responsible for overseeing the local church. And the specific duties given to elders assume a clearly defined group of Christians under their shepherd care. Elders were responsible to, amongst other things, 1 Peter 5, 2, to shepherd God's people. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, to labor diligently among them, to have charge over them. Hebrews 13, verse 17, to keep watch for their souls. 1 Peter 5, 3, to give an account to God. For the individuals allocated to their charge. And these responsibilities that elders bear require a distinguishable, mutually understood fellowship in the local church. The elders can only shepherd and be expected to give an account to God for the spiritual well being of people in their local church. I'll give a quotation the elders of the church are not responsible for the spiritual well-being of every individual who visits the church or who attends sporadically beyond the normal care expected of one Christian to another. 
Rather, they are primarily responsible to shepherd those who have submitted themselves to their care and authority. And conversely, Christians are responsible to number one, Hebrews 3, 13, verse 7, to remember them which have the rule over you. Now you cannot do that unless you're in a local church fellowship. Who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. Again, Hebrews 13, verse 17 speaks about obeying them that have the rule over you. Submit yourself to those who watch for your soul as they that must give an account. 1 Timothy 5 Verses 17 to 19 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in the word and doctrine against an elder received not an accusation, and so forth. Now, it's not possible to fulfil these scriptures unless you are under the authority of church elders, church government. It assumes church fellowship. And then, thirdly, church discipline. It's interesting that the first mention of a local church in the New Testament is in the context of what we might call dispute resolution. That is a shock. Dispute resolution. Right at the beginning. In the first church. That's ever mentioned. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. The Lord Jesus set out a procedure to resolve conflicts amongst believers. And that procedure assumes a church and accountability within that church so in verse 15 when a brother sins he's confronted privately by a single individual verse 16 if he refuses to repent that individual takes one or two other believers to confront him again with the issue verse 17 if he refuses to listen to the two or three then they tell it to the church verse 17 if there's still no repentance the final step is that that person is to put away from the church and treated as they are demonstrating themselves to be as someone without salvation. Because no repentance is a mark of an unbeliever. And if someone is holding themselves out now as an unbeliever, then they have to be treated as an unbeliever and put out until they display the fact that they are a true believer in their repentance. And brought back. The exercise of church discipline, and which is given in more detail in 1 Corinthians 5, and 1 Timothy 5, and Titus 3, presupposes the elders of the church know who is in fellowship and who is under their care. And 1 Corinthians 5 says this, Paul says to the church at Corinth, I verily is absent in body yet present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together. Exercise the discipline. When they're gathered together. Now lastly, mutual edification. Now scripture does exhort all believers to edify other believers by practicing what I can call the one and others of scripture. There's loads of them. You'll never run out of them, I don't think. You certainly won't practice them all. There's loads. And the one and others of Scripture, again, assume relationship in a local church context between these believers. 
So James 5 verse 16, confessing your faults one to another. Colossians 3.13, forbearing and forgiving one another. Colossians, Galatians 6.2, bearing one another's burdens. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comforting one another. Uh, Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, exhorting one another. So you could go on. The one another's of scripture indicate relationship which is beyond superficial. The relationship of partnership and sharing in a community, in a local church setting. So then, local church fellowship, I submit to you, is an assumed essential for us as believers. Which is why those who had sinned, who had not repented, were excluded from it and it was a sore thing. Because it's such a valuable, precious aspect of Christianity. Church fellowship. And think above all assemblies and local churches in scripture, Philippi is the example of it in practice. And when you read through the epistle of the Philippians, you find this, they express their fellowship in lots of ways. In their service. Philippians 1 verse 5, Paul says, and thanks them for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And Philippians 4 and verse 3, in the context of a dispute, he says, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel. They labored with the apostle Paul. They shared, they had fellowship and service. They also had fellowship and suffering. And Paul spoke about that in Philippians 3 verse 10. And his aspiration in relation to Christ that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. They also shared their stuff. Philippians 4 verse 14, Notwithstanding you have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. And they were a good example of a local church not in name only but in practice as they shared they shared their salvation, they shared their service they shared their substance, they shared their suffering they shared all of that they were an entity they were a tight knit little group and as such they were able to serve God so, church fellowship. The question, really, that we would need to ask in relation to this is, do we really understand the difference between membership and fellowship? And if so, are we truly in fellowship with each other in a local context? And is that not just a, a name or, or a, an attendance card or something like that? Or is my life committed to these other believers, sharing with them the things of Christ accountable to Christ under the authority of his government and those who administer it within the church 
and serving him in the opportunities that our local church fellowship gives. I remember when I came in to fellowship in Bridge of Weir, I was 14, and I remember thinking it was a big deal because it actually was a big deal. And I remember the first time I broke bread, and I'll speak of this later, I do remember thinking it was a big deal. And as a 14-year-old, it meant something. Now, I don't say to you that that has always been the case. My appreciation of these things has fluctuated, as I'm sure it has with all of us. But perhaps it's good to remember just exactly the priority that that was in our life when we committed ourselves in fellowship to the local assembly and felt the importance of that in our lives and the priority of it. Not that we worship the church. We don't. We don't worship the scriptures either. We worship God. And we know God through the scriptures and we live for God in the context of the local church. He's the priority, yet the local church ought to be precious to us. For it was precious to Christ. He loved the church and gave himself for it. Let's pray and bring this session to a conclusion.